was the champion, the top man on the mat. But it was only a matter of time before his battles against his rivals and with mental illness took their toll. This is our look at Joe Stetcher, part two. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pearl wrestling history nerds. Are you excited to be here? I certainly hope so. You pressed the button, you downloaded it, you hit play, you got your earbuds in your ears, maybe you're in your living room, maybe you're one of those psychopaths who listens to things full blast on their phone in public. What is your problem? Do you need some earbuds? Who am I? What the hell am I talking about? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a wrestling promoter. I am a wrestling booker. I am occasionally a ring announcer. Sometimes I, well, not anymore. I used to referee, not so much these days, but more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd, and I am here as always with my partner in crime, the uh, the, the, the the Dutch Schultz to my uh, Bugsy Siegel. I don't know if they knew each other, but we do. It's Chongo. How the hell are you, man? Well, first of all, I'm excited. Second of all, how about let's go with like a Peabody and Sherman type dynamic. That'll, 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 maybe the kids are a little bit more with that gist, eh? I think that's what the kids are into today. Absolutely. And what kids are definitely into, judging from the download numbers, is the story of Joe Stetcher. Because we're here with part two. We kind of ran out of time. We ran out of space, ran out of brain power last time. So we're here to finish this story up to a certain point. We're continuing this big, crazy arc that we're working on of what happened with wrestling after the Gotch Hackenschmidt days, and Joe Stetcher was a big part of it, as you know from last time. Uh, and I feel like that story was crazy, and it was just warming up. Yeah, it's, it, was, it was entirely... Uh a self-contained narrative and it had you know several you know lessons and and moral things and things that have been copied along the way since then and have become sort of normalized but it's about to take a very serious turn man the story of stretcher needs an episode two stretcher so it doesn't get carried out on a stretcher and that's what we're here to do old chap because we as we went through last time this was a man who was the at the top of his game at a young age he was the best in his field he was he was the the new standard but he could not outrun the shadow of frank gotch i think we finished last time talking about that five-hour draw with ed lewis and these big crazy matches but then at the end of the road what is anybody talking about what did Frank Gotch think about this? And there was that back and forth between Gotch's camp and Stetcher's camp trying to make it make financial sense. Both knew how much money would be on the table. Both knew the stakes uh, that would that would be you know at this at this level for this type of event. And yes, there was a lot of talk about how maybe it was a planned work, but they just needed the work to make sense so that. Gotch could lay down his legacy to somebody who was worthy of it and that everybody would leave him the fuck alone. But that still was a long, drawn-out process. And meanwhile, there were a lot of matches to be had, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, and I promise you, darling, if it's a work, it was very Manny Pacquiao of him to, like, throw off the payday and delay the, the big money fight that everyone wanted to see with the, with the reigning king, man. 
Same with the April 29th Washington Times that made the opening about Stetcher challenging Gotch before even remotely covering his win over Americus, a great wrestler from Baltimore in that time. You know, everything was just about, will this big match happen? It kind of undercuts the great title reign that Stetcher is having. And I do understand the business side of that because Stetcher is killing everyone. He's making money. He's the top guy. So if you're going to have the big super fight against an unretired Gotch, even if you are the betting favorite because you know, you're young, you're hot, you're beating everybody, you still want to make damn sure you're getting equal share on that from, uh, from, from Gotch. So I, I do respect him holding out for the, the payday. I do respect him making sure that the business part of it is you know, just as worthwhile. I don't know if they sold merch back then. I hope you'd get 100% of all, all shirts sold. Who the heck knows? But there is another version of this whole story that was told. I want to say it was uh, Luthez was saying that Ed Strangler Lewis said that this whole plan was a long simmering plan for a worked match where, you know, Gotch realized they could make a lot of money, they could boil it for a while, and then he would do a worked loss to Stetcher, which would finally put the you know, put an end to the you know, calling out of Gotch because now somebody has has beaten him who is like a good representation of the sport, the sort of guy that Gotch wouldn't mind putting over because it would be a good payday, and then everybody would finally leave him the fuck alone. Wow, that's it's that's fascinating to me for a number of reasons. One, it just shows the difference in mindset versus like the way that it was done, like what they did with Hogan and Iron Sheik, right? They didn't want the babyface to beat the babyface. They wanted that transitional heel champion. And they're not really using it that way. They're putting the, the heels, putting the babyface contender over to set up the baby-baby match for the, for the belt. But that's, but yeah, you see that a lot. Like uh, another example that popped in my head is like Conor McGregor right now in the UFC. He was the champ. He had this, he had taken the, the sort of the fame and the prestige of the, 55 belt and the 45 belt even without defending them to another level where now everyone who's won it since then even if they are potentially better superior fighters than him it's like yeah but it's not connor and it doesn't really get cemented until someone beats connor at that weight you know exactly or if you know this match had ended up actually happening it would be a lot like how one of the few master strokes that wwe has done in the last number of years was when they introduced the concept of john cena versus the rock one year before it actually happened so you yeah. had a babyface babyface match but it allowed like a little twists and turns and here and there where you people had you know reason to care because of like the personal drama you know however they're they're doing it but it gave it a very very long simmer so the payoff even if like the match wasn't you know a melter you know 20 star classic it meant so much more because it took so long to build up and that was you know that was brilliant as opposed to uh you know fucking Hogan stepping in and squashing, uh, you know, the Sting winning, you know, beating him type of thing after the big buildup. You know, storyline-wise, this was brilliant. It would have probably been the match that saved pro wrestling as a, you know, front page sport. You know, it would have restored it to the, you know, pre-Hackenschmidt gotch match days. And it really could have done that. Because unfortunately, Gotch broke his leg in a circus match and declared his retirement for good. In the article, Frank Gotch, wrestler is no more. Now Frank Gotch, farmer. 
From the Dubuque Times Journal, August 1st, 1916, they discussed how Gotch was already not interested in the grueling schedule and training camp required for such a match, and now that his leg was broken, as a man nearly 40, this would heal fine over time, but would push the match back at least a year and create an injured spot that Gotch would have to work even harder to defend. And Maybe after it healed and he had the itch again, maybe something could have happened, but Gotch died soon after that from uremic poisoning, though there are, of course, rumors of syphilis, and that was that. Well, maybe he should have taken the 40%, you know, tried to get the 50-50 split on the rematch, but, you know, that's the best laid plans, man. That sucks, because he, he ended up holding out and waiting to build up the match, and he ended up blowing his leg out doing some carny circus show what comedy match or something that there is some sort of ironic lesson in there somewhere i don't know you, you unpack it and alive or dead one thing you might have noticed about all this is everyone is talking about gotch during stetcher's unstoppable run as the champion Gotch cast a great shadow over wrestling that persisted until the 20s even well after his death and during his title reign, while he was the hottest wrestler in active competition, Stetcher's primary rival was Ed Strangler Lewis, a man we'll be talking about a lot in the near future. And their first of many matches took place on October 20th, 1915, in less than fantastic fashion. According to the October 21st Chicago Examiner article titled, Stetcher Victor Over Lewis in Near Riot. You know that's going to be good. The match ended after two hours, that's right, two hours, with Lewis thrown into the ropes and was unable to continue and was, you know, out of the ring. He, you know, hit the ropes, out of the ring, hit his head, and was unable to continue and was carried to the dressing room. The mayor, who was one of the 2,500 spectators there in Evansville, Indiana, stormed backstage to see what was what and claimed Lewis was not injured at all when he stepped into the dressing room. The crowd lost their minds in a not good way after Stetcher was awarded the win via forfeit. The mayor banned wrestling until it could be confirmed as a legitimate sport. Damn it! Because that was a hell of an angle. Because keep in mind, we are talking about a ring is a relatively new concept here. So it is entirely possible that it was just a... Uh, a innovation and a great idea like you know what if i fell out of the ring and we go down we could work the program that seemed i was so excited as you were laying that out and putting it together in my head and then the fuzz had to get involved and and break up all the fun yeah because this one definitely had to have been a work with neither man wanting to look weak and understanding that down the road they can make a lot more money even though they were very much rivals in the business so a freak injury was cooked up as a non-finish a basic plan in wrestling when two top guys wanted a big payday but not a big dent in their reputations as grapplers one could say that this laid the groundwork for lewis dropping the title to wayne munn years later that's a, um, yeah, the ripple effect off of this is really interesting because I wonder if they like had resentment after sort of this really clever, from what I, the way I take that, that was a really clever attempt at an angle that basically almost worked too well. It started a riot like that in that, in that way, it's awesome because it, it was that much of a shock reaction and they wanted 
to see more. That that's the point of an angle is to get them to want to see more and spend more money. And they he, they had them ready to riot because they wanted more, and the 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 government shut it down because it didn't smell right uh, as a it smelled like a work. That sucks, man. Yeah, because keep in mind that wrestling at this time was not governed by an athletic commissions. Athletic commissions did not exist, and the purpose was to draw money. So while it was definitely shifting from to more works than shoots, everyone involved still had to be legit grapplers who could make it look like a competitive match. So honestly, they probably would have gotten away with it if the mayor hadn't stuck his damn nose into uh, the backstage to see what, uh, what, what was happening and see how badly he was hurt when he wasn't hurt at all. And it was at this time that Stetcher's career and life started going a little bit sideways in a very uncomfortable way with him clearly developing mental health problems. He was subject to fits of depression, rage, and anxiety. He was known to make bad investments and generally was bad with money, all signs of bipolar disorder or something similar, which tends to develop when you're in your early 20s. And this can ruin your life even when diagnosed and treated. And how do I know? Because I have to deal with bipolar disorder every goddamn day. So when you are the most talented grappler around, and you are also subject to the tours and the pressures and all this, and you have a mental health disorder, and this is in the, you know, like the 19 teens, uh, you know, this isn't a time when you can get, you know, your, your prescription filled and see a therapist. Everybody, instead of saying you're, you're, you have mental health problems and we'll get you some help, it's a matter of you're a fucking weirdo or you're, a, you're an asshole or whatever thing you are doing because you literally cannot function as a person. Especially, like I said, at this height, it makes things virtually impossible because you literally can't get out of bed some days. Some days you're in a bad mood and want to you know, start arguments with people who are your friends and loved ones for no fucking reason. Sometimes you get manic and you know, blow your money because you, know, you just need to feel excitement. There are all kinds of bad things that can happen and it makes it even worse because this is not a time when there was any sensitivity or acknowledgement of mental health. Yeah, or any understanding, I would imagine. This is legitimately a hundred or more years ago, the timetable we're talking about right now. And how far back is that in the understanding of psychology? And the even, you know, talk about just like, you know, chin up, be a man, you know what I mean? Suck it up, don't talk about it. That whole sort of mindset and philosophy was the norm in society, especially for a man's man and an athlete. You couldn't like cry and want to stay in bed and eat chocolate all day that was that would have been seen as such weakness and it's really it's really sad but it's really cool that we're getting to tell this story now with modern eyes and understanding how heroic it was to to battle that in this climate at this time because yes this was a time when psychology was a science but it was mostly a european or you know big city type of thing it was you know this was the age of carl jung and adler and mary louise von franz so you know there was this you know idea of the psyche of of mental health of the talking cure as they called therapy in those days but the protestant work ethic you find on farms in the in the midwest that doesn't exist 
because you are not allowed to have bad days because the cow needs to be uh, you know lifted over the uh, over the hay bales or whatever happens on farms so you don't get the luxury of feeling your feelings you don't have the luxury to to work through these problems or express it properly so it turns into outbursts and then everybody thinks you're just a crazy person or an asshole because the only treatment you have is being thrown into a loony bin or going to some weird resort where a quack will tell you to uh, you know get a coffee enema yeah that is such a difficult uh thing to try to work through under the the structure of being a wrestler and a professional wrestler and a world champion and adhering to that type of discipline and training schedule where the entire mindset and philosophy is you know will and work ethic and sheer determination over how bad it hurts you don't stop you don't wilt in your effort right so that the idea of staying in bed and giving into sort of like mental illness and, and acknowledging your own symptoms i got to imagine that was a real hard demon for him to struggle with and this clearly was a big factor in his april 20th match against earl Caddick the original man of a thousand holds. Kadik was a South Dakota standout who had been trained by Gotch and Burns and was taking his first big step after being a regional star, much like Stetcher had been a few years before. And according to the Fort Wayne Journal-Gazette, April 21st, 1917, the match in Omaha kicked off with Stetcher winning the first fall around the one hour mark, but he was visibly exhausted and Kadic took the second fall around one hour and 40 minutes, but Stetcher refused to come back for the third fall and he lost the match and the title via forfeit. While we may think of this as a simple case of being tired, as any reasonable person today would, after three hours of wrestling, just remember his five-hour draws. This is the, like, these are grapplers who would go all day, every day. His conditioning was off the charts, but he later told conflicting stories of having a cold and having a neck injury, but congratulated Earl Caddick nonetheless. As you can imagine, the audience was less than thrilled. It was a situation where I kind of feel like he was having a bad day. He was not ready for that mentally. And just something in his brain said, we're done. Yeah, it sounds like he, it was one of those days where if he had had the choice, he wouldn't have got out of bed. And I've been there, man, and I feel that. Because sometimes as a, as a fighter, as a, a, a whether that's you know cage fighting or competing in jiu-jitsu, wrestling in college, whatever it is, you, you put all this time and focus and energy and sort of stress and pressure to perform at your highest possible level on this, on this certain day. And all the chips are on that one day. And if that day you're off, if you don't feel well, if you, you know, your stomach hurts, if you, you got sinuses, it, it really has a disproportionate effect of just devastation. Because then all this work you feel like was for nothing because he lost. Kind of like uh, we, another fight we bring up a lot, which is uh, uh, Matt Serra versus Georges St. Pierre, where St. Pierre was a young champion. He hit the top of the mountain and he was still going out partying instead of focusing. And because his mental game was off, he got beat by a guy who had no business beating him. It's the psychological aspect of fighting um, of most sports, of many things in life, is beyond calculation because if you're off even 1%, it's like sailing across the ocean and you look at your compass and you say, we have to go in this straight line, but if you're off even 1%, 
by the time you get to the uh, you know the the end of the line, you're going to be so far off of where you wanted to go, so far away from your destination that you're practically lost. Yeah, and I can't imagine that the domino effect from this point was a positive for Stetcher because now his demons are starting to like leak into his world and getting the better of him and cost him the belt. He didn't. He he didn't. He stayed on his stool. He took the he took the towel on the stool. That's you know. I, you know, after going for forever, so I'm not going to question the man's conditioning because obviously the, he gave it everything he had, but it just shows that he was not nearly capable of giving what he can on his best day that particular day, and it's pretty sad to see that that is the cause of his downfall. Because as we discussed when we were talking about Gotch being one of the few champions who doesn't have a, a self-destruct button where they don't go crazy or they don't get complacent or they don't you know change up the uh, to catch up to the sport when things uh, advance a little bit past them, there's always that self-destruct button that a lot of people have where you've been on the top too long and the pressure starts getting to you and you just kind of want an out. You're looking for an excuse to lose. You're looking for an excuse to get out of the uh, out, of, out of that top level spotlight you see that in boxing you see that in MMA a lot especially with dominant champions who have held on to titles for a very long time where they start making mental mistakes and I because I the pressure's gotten to them they've been so busy they've been on the road they're doing all this non-stop living that life that I think eventually you just start looking for that uh, you know that that escape and even if that escape means getting knocked the fuck out in the middle of the ring on pay-per-view that's still like an unconscious urge that has to be fulfilled so you can get the fuck out of that situation. And when you add clear you know, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, what he had and was not diagnosed, was not treated, that makes it so much worse. So I really can't take anything away from Kadok, who was an amazing wrestler, but I kind of feel like the loss was more... I guess the way to put it is Joe Stetcher was beat more by Joe Stetcher than he was by Earl Caddick. Yeah, it took Stetcher getting taken the distance on his worst day for him to not get the job done. And ultimately, that's, that's pretty damn impressive in and of itself. Here's his worst day. They went hours to the third fall. He got a fall. I mean, we're talking about he won a match. He finished the first fight. He... He gave it what he had, and that's all you can ask of a champion. And eventually, you know, the cup, the cup gets empty. And, yeah, that's why I feel like the mental health was the big issue because yeah. he didn't come out and lose. He didn't come out and say, you know what, I'm exhausted or I, you know, I stubbed my pinky toe on the coffee table backstage. He didn't come out to fight or lose. He didn't come out to say, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna out like the end of the wild bunch or I'm going to you know, go back, you know, walk back out with his fucking title. He just sat back there and he gave up in the backstage in his dressing room during the 15-minute break between falls. Something in him just turned off and he was not able to walk back out. You know, I, well, again, as somebody with bipolar disorder, I fully understand that overwhelming anxiety. I cannot begin to understand what that would be in a title match in front of thousands of people. Yeah, it, it speaks to a different type of strength and courage to, you know, be able to say, no, I'm done. I've had enough. And to stick to that, stick to your guns and and to call it off despite probably what everyone else is, is you know, um, counseling him to do. That's it. it 
it's really it's it's really sad that that we're at this note in the story right now. It is, and we are. Unfortunately, we have kind of hit the end of where we're going to be leaving Joe Stetcher. Yes, it is a bit of a downer. It's 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 a very serious thing talking about mental illness and how it can ruin lives. But don't worry, Joe Stetcher will return in this narrative that we are doing over several episodes. It's going to be a heck of a ride as we get into the 20s. We have other people to discuss before we uh, you know, make this this big team up of, uh, of how things uh, came across in the days of the Goldust Trio because we will be talking about Ed Strangler Lewis. We'll be talking about John Pesek. We'll catch up and see what uh, you know, Zabisco had been doing. There's so many crazy stories that just intertwine during these days of the old Greco-Roman men who see the world they grew up on vanishing and being relegated to to being second banana to some catch wrestling kid. We have you know these young like you know amazing you know catch wrestlers whose entire careers existed in the shadow of Frank Gotch, and therefore they are very much overlooked and forgotten. But they were just as good as anyone, just as amazing as anyone. But their stories, for the most part, don't get told until we do things like this because the sport was changing the world was changing we always talk about how wrestling is the american experience it is a reflection of the society in which it exists and as we kind of wander through the world war one era where you know americans were kind of expected to go do certain things at a certain point that uh, you know not everybody wanted to do uh wrestlers in europe came flooding into america to find no opportunities because the uh, the Greco-Roman style was kind of dead in the water. You had men trying to call out Frank Gotch and then Joe Stetcher, you know, Aberg and all the people involved in the, the 1915 tournament were trying to lure Stetcher in to try to pop the, uh, the ratings and at least get, you know, maybe they could beat him and then they would be the man and control the fucking narrative. It was all really just the fallout of Gotch and Hackenschmidt, and that fallout is going to also come down on a lot of people. Some made it out okay, some did not. Those are the stories for now. This is not the end of Joe Stetcher's tale, but it's the end of this episode. We'll get back to him soon enough. Um, as always, you know, like if you have an idea or think something's cool, let us know. We like hearing from you. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, check out our Instagram. I'll try to find as many cool old photos as I possibly can. We like to tell the story in a multimedia way. We like you being involved because we wouldn't be doing this if you weren't listening. Thank you for listening to us. Thanks for going along on this journey with us. For Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. Good night, everybody. Yeah, thank you, nerds. Cut print martini. This is normally where you hear the music and the episode ends, but I wanted to talk about why I chose this long-form story to cover in our show. History is always far more complicated than our brains can often process. The human psyche thrives on narratives and the symbolic nature of myths and legends. We follow the hero's journey, if you will, not the endless Venn diagram of overlapping events, personalities, and motivations that bleed across one another for years if not decades or centuries. Wrestling history in the 1910 to 1920 decade mirrors a lot of what was happening in the world as a whole. Complex jumps in communication, travel, the crumbling of empires, and birth of worldviews and ways of doing business. Or as Antonio Gramsci put it, the old world is dying and the new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters.
World War I, simmering in this era, didn't just pop off with an archduke being shot and the next day everyone is dug into trenches across Europe. It took long simmering resentments, outdated forms of statemanship, and empires on their last legs with centuries of hubris weighing down its judgment. There were no clear-cut heroes, no clear-cut villains, no romanticizing big wins, just men being fed to a meat grinder on bombed-out fields for years. This is why World War II will always hold more fascination to historians and to the public, because it has the mythic feel, clear-cut, almost cartoonish bad guys, heroes standing up for what is right, lionized, mythology about D-Day, the Battle of the Bulge, Pearl Harbor, Iwo Jima, it's downright cinematic, if you will. But even then, we have to ignore or simplify the connective tissue and deeper meanings of things. We go for the big Spielberg or Christopher Nolan movie moments to paint meaning over a cliff's notes of history. And though it seems completely insane to compare the horrors of war to the pro wrestling business, it's the macro and micro of how we see history, and even the comparison requires oversimplification to tell the tale. Gotch versus Hackenschmidt was mythology in action. We have our Rocky and our Ivan Drago. We have our Johnny from Cobra Kai versus Danielson. We have a clash of titans that brought the world of wrestling crashing down with it. If it were Greek drama or tragedy, the hubris destroying the hero who flew too close to the sun, again, it becomes legend. Or was it? Frank Gotch was the most skilled wrestler of his time, but he was also a shrewd businessman, a carny, a con man, and not above getting rough and throwing cheap shots in legitimate matches. Hackenschmidt was brilliant, talented, and the pride of his people. He came into the fight hated for his foreignness and for being the potential equal of Gotch in America. But he was damaged goods and had a mental and emotional breakdown after the match and never fully recovered. People are not the myths that they become. Nor was this the great turning point where wrestling became a work and catch wrestling fully supplanted Greco-Roman. Greco-Roman had been on a decline since the days of William Muldoon and Theobode Bauer. Catch wrestling was more fast-paced, had more danger with the submission holds, and it supplanted Greco-Roman in popularity in America even before the modern Olympics launched in 1896 and put Greco-Roman front and center to make it prestigious. And wrestling had been half-work, half-shoot for as long as anyone would be willing to bet on it. That's right, the Hippodrome Express had been running for as long as a promoter realized he could make a buck off of it, and again, we simplify to make history a myth, to make it storytelling. Another reason this era is glossed over is it being sandwiched between the Wild West days of barnstorming, each town having its own promoter, and circus show scams. But again, those lasted for decades to come. But in the background, as wrestling became more organized on a national level, with the trust signing talent to contracts, controlling national booking, and crushing anyone who stood up to them. It set a pattern that would continue in wrestling again and again until the late 90s, because history always repeats itself. Wrestling history has also latched onto and romanticized the NWA and the era where that title was paramount. It's looked back as the source of 
real wrestling by fans of Southern style grappling, WCW, and various snobs who demand that what they like is the air of real wrestling through its lineage back to Luthez. I have half a feeling that if Ed Lewis hadn't been Thez's trainer and manager, even he would have been swept away in the skewing of history based on who owns the rights to sell DVDs, t-shirts, and profit from the names. It's like Mildred Burke's story, where the women who worked for Billy Wolf got erased from the mainstream narrative of women's wrestling history because WWE had a relationship with the fabulous moolah that required, for business reasons, to legitimize her claims over all others. Objective history is too complex and unbiased to compress into mythology, especially when the last stop on the history tour is going to be the gift shop. This is why I love stories like the ones we tell, the gaps in the narrative, the men and women who were champions, and the brightest stars of their day, who are now remembered as background characters in the dramas of others, if they are remembered at all. Joe Stetcher, John Pesek, Strangler Lewis, Stanislaw Zabisco, his younger brother Vladek, Georg Lurich, Alexander Aberg, all men who shone as bright stars in this lost generation, this dark age of wrestling history, though nobody in that day would have called it any such thing. To them it was life. It was the best of times, the worst of times, and these men and women were the biggest of stars. I am fascinated by them, and I hope you are as well. And now it's time to call it a day, get back to reading old sports newspapers, and let's hit the music and take it home.